welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa, and uh, I am joined today with, uh, by two special guests. I'm going to introduce them in a minute, but uh, for those of you that are joining us uh, for the first time, welcome to the show. We're, uh, we're glad you're here. We hope that the show is informative. Uh, this show is basically designed to help educate our audience, the financial advisor community, on things that are going on, things you should be aware of, um, how to grow your practice, how to manage your practice, how to recruit, um, answering questions about recruiting. Uh, for those of you that are uh, returning guests, thank you very much. Uh, we ask that you, you know, we don't advertise on these shows. So if you have someone that uh, th you think this content is good for, please share it with them. We appreciate that. And uh, don't forget to like and subscribe um, if you check it out on Apple iTunes or Spotify, wherever else you you uh, listen to your podcast, we appreciate it. And also, don't forget, we have a YouTube channel, which is Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa on YouTube. So you can check us out and check out what the studio looks like with a bunch of these guys here. So anyway, uh, let me get started here. And today I'm joined with uh, two two great guys that work for the firm. Uh, Brian Selfridge, who's a managing director of what we now call Elite Advisor Successions, and Joe Greco, who's also a managing director of Elite Advisor Successions. So, guys, welcome to the show. Hopefully, you guys aren't too nervous. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. Thanks Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Brian is uh, showing us up. He's got the tie going on today. So, uh, that's cool. Appreciate that. Um, but anyway, today I wanted to invite them onto the show. Um, there was some news that came out about um, Elite Consulting Partners, which is our main firm acquiring a firm called Advisor Successions, which is now Elite Advisor Successions. Um, Advisor Successions was and is um, a, a, an M&A focused uh, firm that connects buyer, financial advisors, buyers and sellers. So large enterprises that are looking to acquire practices. Um, and you know, we, we help with that. What we were doing with Elite Consulting Partners, which is what Brian had been doing for us for the better part of seven years, I believe, is really focusing on um, firms that are looking to proactively recruit. So we merged the two firms together, which is now Elite Advisor Successions. Um, so um, guys, I wanted to just maybe just give just a quick introduction, uh, a little bit of your background, and then we can get into some of the questions that I wanna uh, really talk about with the audience today. Sure, well, thanks, Frank. Uh, my name's Brian Selfridge. I'm the managing director of Elite Advisors Successions. I've been with the firm for seven years. And what we did prior to acquiring Elite Advisors Successions is primarily concentrate on hiring or helping firms hire talented financial advisors with copious amounts of assets and perpetually doing that over and over and over again. But we realized along the way, we generated a lot of sellers and we wanted to create a more efficient marketplace for those sellers. That's why we acquired Advisor Successions, folding them into now Elite Advisor Successions. And, and Joe, your background um, is a little bit different. So Brian, you, before you came to Elite, you were really a B, in, in the B2B business, working with large accounting firms and CPA practices. Yeah, a lot of time at automatic data processing and Thomson Reuters tax and accounting. So my background is in Fortune 500 sales and account management. Awesome. 
And so, Joe, tell us a little about your background because it's also interesting uh, with uh, who you who you had the privilege to uh, work with and still work with sure. um, to some degree, and really got to have a front seat to uh, what what it takes to build a, a massive business. Yeah, absolutely. So, I started my career with Jonathan Cutton, who is the biggest advisor in Ameriprise Financial on the independent side. Uh, I worked for John for about ten years uh, in various roles. Started as a junior advisor, kind of felt like that really wasn't for me. So I got more into business development, uh, created a ton of CPA relationships who are partners of the firm now, uh, then got more into M&A and coaching, you know, teaching other advisors how to work with accountants, um, and then really getting into mergers and acquisitions and really finding deals uh, for John and the team to absorb uh, within their practice there. And, you know, the good thing about working with John is, is that I've seen the practice go from about a billion when I started uh, to he's about, he's at about nine and a half to 10 billion now of AUM. So you know, all the systems, the scale, the processes that were developed during that time, um, I had some role in, but also too, it's really cool to see a team like that really scale up and come together and really figure out where the strengths lie to be able to put the right people in the right seat. So that's really my experience. And, uh, you know, really hope to bring some M&A knowledge to the, to the team here at Elite. Um, obviously, I see the opportunity. It's incredible, you know, with the amount of lead flow that you guys get. And like Brian said, right, you know, there are a lot of sellers out there. So it's not just about an advisor looking to move from firm to firm, uh, succession planning and the great wealth transfer that's happening right now. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity for us to be able to match qualified buyers with sellers who really want to sell their business over the next few years um, and be able to consult with them and get them to the finish line to get that. So deal. when you work with, so I want to, I want to start with that, um, with the, with the buyers that you were working with, right? And again, to some degree, having a, um, a front row seat with what uh, John was, has been able to do and really be a mass acquirer not only, not only within the Ameriprise spectrum, but also firms outside of Ameriprise, bringing and rolling them into his business. Sure. But if you look at the clients that we have today, maybe some of the past clients we have, we we now have we have right at Elite Advisor Successions. Tell me a little bit about um, their the the buyers' attitudes when they're coming to you. What is it that they're what is it that they're looking for? And do you find that sometimes what they think that they're looking for and what they're actually looking for are different because they don't necessarily, they're new to the space, right? Because everybody, look, everybody, the reality is everybody wants to be a buyer. Everybody feels like that's the quickest way to grow their practice, which it is. Um, but not every buyer is created the same. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit when I ask you guys about what makes a good buyer, what makes a good, you know, not a good buyer, right? Sure. Um, but what was your uh, first sort of thoughts on when you when you took over the practice, advisor succession practice, and you started talking with the buyers that were there um, in terms of their goals, what their ideas were, and what their really what their end goal really was in order to buy. You know, I think some of the better buyers in our network, and I guess I'll frame it this way, they're flexible, right? They're willing to do whatever it's going to take to get the deal done, whether that be drive a few states, right, to meet the person for dinner, fly out there, you know, whatever it's going to take to get the deal done, you need to put the time in to make sure it happens. And I think a lot of buyers, unfortunately, think it's going to be easy. Um, it's not, right? And I think that also couples into our best buyers in our network are more CEOs and rainmakers. They're not an advisor who still has 200 clients and they're still tied to that side of the business. They have size, scale, and a team to be able to handle the wealth management side of the business. And they're really more of in a position to get the deal done, you know, be that CEO and rainmaker for the business. Um, so why does that make them a better buyer than, than somebody had their own book of business? Because isn't that, 
you know, isn't that what most advisors want to do, right? They have a hundred million bucks and they want to go out and buy another business for a hundred million bucks. Right. But I mean, think about if you do two big transactions, are you going to manage all those clients? I mean, then you have no time to do more acquisitions. So the best buyers in our network are really able to tell the story, get the deal done from a management and central standpoint. But that at the end of the day, they're not working with the two or three or 400 families that come along with that acquisition. They have a team, they have junior advisors, they have systems, and then they can just go on to the next deal and keep meeting sellers to be able to really scale that model. Um, you know, some buyers get tapped out, right? If it's just a few advisors on the team, they do two acquisitions, guess what? Then they need to go hire more people. So I think the best buyers in our network have already built scale for the future. They're not looking at it like, oh, now we need to build scale. They're thinking two, three, four years ahead because they've really built a business plan around this. So that's interesting because we've talked a lot about this on other podcasts. And if you've listened to my podcast in the past, uh, we've talked about if you want to be a, a, an acquirer, you're going to go out and buy practices, you have to prepare ahead of time. You can't uh, go after a, your local buddy who who you know is going to sell, and it's the first time you're thinking about acquiring, and you have no systems. Right. You have no support staff. It's you and your assistant, and then you wonder why you're losing deals or you're not winning the deals because you're competing against serial buyers that have a system, they have staff, they have accounting, they have a CFO, they have support staff, they have technology, processes, systems, right? Um, so if you're going to get into the space, uh, you you have to be prepared ahead of time. You can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go out and buy practices because that's what I want to do. It's like preseason in football. Like you have your team in place. You, you don't just go out and start playing. You have to practice and you have to see what you have before you step onto the field for regular season. Um, and so, Brian, I don't think it's much different when we talk about recruiting, right? Because, you know, there are a lot of lot of practices that we work with that want to grow through recruiting and they want to get the override, right? If I Well, if I bring in, you know, $10 million of advisor recruited revenue and I get, you know, and I get 10, a 10% override on that, it's a million bucks in revenue. It's more than I produce, right? So I'm going to go out and and I want to go out and recruit people. Tell me what your experience has as you chuckle, because we, we've had some clients that have this sort of um, grandiose plans and, and can't execute. Tell me about what your experience has been with people that you've worked with and why, pra- I'll just say practices, are trying to dip their toe into the recruiting space. And then where do you see them making the biggest mistakes? Frank, when you think about trying to grow either through recruiting by adding talented financial advisors or trying to acquire assets without the financial advisor, they're really two different processes. They're really separated by the way you need to treat the other individual, whether it be a seller looking for a succession or a team of talented financial advisors looking to join your company. Um, When you think about adding financial advisors to your roster, this is a process or a courtship, right? Where you really need to spend the time and energy to get to know them, to make sure that they fit into your culture, that they have a pathway for growth. When you think about trying to acquire somebody's assets and only keeping them around for as long as it's necessary to keep those assets sticky, those type of considerations aren't in place. The buyer needs to be aggressive with the seller. 
any buyer that isn't aggressive with a seller really isn't a buyer. So when you say be aggressive, what do you mean by be aggressive? Like call them every every other day or you know, send them blow up their email box? What I mean is set a schedule, set an idea with the seller as to when and where you're going to be talking about the next step in the acquisition process. If you're not always talking about the next step, then that's the aggressive that I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. We find um, in our space where we work with a client and they say they want to do something and we, we have a process here that we have our, our candidates go through, our clients go through, because we know that um, lots of things can come in the come, get in the way, right? So you're distracted, you have business going on, life going on, and you may in your mind know you want to leave a firm or you're looking to sell or find a successor, and then life gets in the way. And if you don't have somebody with you helping you through that process, you can you can you pick your head up one day and six or nine months has gone by or a year has gone by, and you actually spend a lot of time wasting time um, just can, uh, talking over and over and over again, making no progress because you don't have anybody pulling you through the process that you need to go through unless unless you don't want to, right? So we talk about that all the time. Like, what is your appetite to really do something? Um, and if it's, well, I'm lukewarm about it, I'm, I'm kicking tires, I'm not really sure, oh, that's one thing. Um, but we see clients all the time that say to us, I, you know, I need to do something. And so we're like, okay, well, we'll help you with that. And then they just keep kicking the can, right? right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you've been around long enough, I've been almost 30 years now, I've seen stuff happen with people that kick the can and all of a sudden there's a health issue. There's something goes on in your life. And then you say, shit, I should have done, I should have done it sooner. I didn't have that plan in place. Um, and I think that that, and I want to, Joe, I'm going to get back to you in a second because I want to get an idea and give my, give the audience an idea of, what of the type of market that we're that we're talking about here that the scale because i think covid was part of this you know we don't talk about covid as much anymore but i think covid really brought some of this to, to the to the uh, forefront choppy markets that were sort of in up and down uh, but i think people are starting to realize that i got to do something right and they don't have the solution which can lee look this is a plug for us that's why we brought this that's why we did this that's why we're doing this because um I feel like there isn't enough of this going on in the marketplace. And there are so many, um, as Brian, you said, so many sellers out there, right? So Joe, and you're, even since you, you've come here, right? Give me an, give, give the audience an idea of, of the size of the market that we're talking about in terms of sellers. And again, sellers are defined, we, we define a seller as someone that has an interest in in finance successor, that could be immediately, or it could be, I want to move to a firm. And then in two or three years, I want to start transitioning out. So that's how we define. It doesn't mean they're selling and they're out tomorrow. There's, there's, there could be a, um, actually, matter of fact, we probably recommend that, that you don't transition out right away because there's going to be a huge attrition rate on your book of business. So you want to find a person you can, you can move to and then get to know them and let your clients get to know the buyer uh, because much of your deal, which we'll talk about on, on another episode, so we're going to do two episodes, we're talking about deal structure and all that. But a lot of times the deals are based on the success and retention of the clients um, through a seller's note. So, but anyway, 
tell us a, li- a little bit about your impression and your, what you're seeing now in terms of the volume of sellers that are out there. Yeah. So the volume of sellers has been great. Um, I will say over the next you know five to 10 years with everything that's going on in the world and baby boomers retiring and this great wealth transfer that everyone's talking about, more and more folks every year are going to wind up selling their business. And it's a nice paradox because financial advice, it's a great industry to be in, but it's actually not attracting a lot of young talent into the industry. Um, so you have less and less financial advisors coming in every year. You have more and more advisors retiring. It almost creates this perfect synergy if you're a serial acquirer, right? Because the amount of deal flow uh, potential that you're able to get is great. And you have to really start to build that value proposition out. But what we usually tell prospective sellers and also buyers is that for every seller, there's probably about 50 buyers out there, right? So if you're in any town USA and you're looking to sell your business, you could probably easily find 50 folks that would be able to buy it. Now, are they qualified, right? Are they actually willing to go through the process? That's another thing. Um, And then once you talk about LA, New York, Chicago, that number actually goes up to 200 and 250, right? In the really, really populated metro area. So it's a super competitive environment out there, right? If you're looking to buy a business, um, and a lot of buyers know this, you're not going to close every deal. You're going to lose a deal. A deal's going to fall apart on the five-yard line. Someone in their office is going to come in, right, and swoop it up at the end of the day, and they're going to lose it, right? This happens all the time. Uh, but I think it really comes down to how do you put yourself in a situation to just get as many opportunities as possible, knowing that half of them you're not going to close anyway. Just put yourself, get more at-bats to be able to eventually hit that home run. That's and, the idea. And Frank, I'd like to make a comment on that. In a universe where this isn't supposed to happen, right now we have more qualified sellers that we're working with than we have buyers. Right. And that's because we're, as we're, look, as we're talking to advisors all over the country, you know, being the, the, the largest rec- third party recruiting firm and consulting firm out there, we talk to a lot of advisors. And a lot of times it's, well, I'm not really looking to make a move unless I can find a successor. Um, what I see a lot of times is that their choice is stay at the firm and sell at a lower multiple. Pigeonholed into pigeonholed, a right? Um, and especially if it's a W-2 market, and I'm not going to say wire, but if it's a W-2 market, not only are you pigeonholed with the, with the deal that the firm wants to give you, right? Because they're going to set the number. They're going to set the percentage. But you're really pigeonholed with the, the guys or gals in your office, right? Because it's unlikely your branch manager is going to let you sell your book of business to another office, because your branch manager is going to lose that revenue. So that message, that's actually a sort of a, a warning to sellers. But this, this, the other warning there to buyers is your competition isn't necessarily the other independent practice that might be out there, but it's the manager in the, in the office of the uh, practice you're trying to buy because they're going to try to come back to him with a rationale on why they should only take you know, one and a half times or two times on their book of business and only get paid out over five years because it's easier or whatever. When the reality is that seller could, what I, we, what, and we trademarked is called dual monetization. That seller can theoretically move to your firm, your new firm, most likely get, get a, a transition deal to do that, right? And then you can then acquire their practice um, over time. And again, on the next episode, we're going to really get into some of the details and ideas on how to structure deals, right? Because there's all sorts of creative ways to do it, which is what I love, love about this. So Joe, you talk about, you know, essentially you got to kiss a lot of frogs, right? Maybe you have this number, maybe you don't have this number, but 
if you're a buyer, what what is what should you expect in terms of the number of engagements you should have, right? If we're talking about KPIs, right? Key performance indicators. One of them might be the number of um, acquisition conversations that a buyer has. And that means that you're talking to somebody, you're sitting down, they're considering selling their practice to the to the seller, right? To the buyer, excuse me. How many, how many conversations or how many engagements do you think a buyer has to have to close one deal? Just in terms of managing expectations here. I would say in general, you're probably looking at at least 10. Um, I think that our process is much better because the elite team is great at qualifying those people that we bring to our buyers to make sure that not only are they actually looking to sell, but they have a business that the buyer is looking to buy, right? There's no you know, uncertainties within that business, right? They do a good job at vetting, I think, those leads. So that's good. But at the end of the day, usually we see about a 10 to 1 ratio. Um, and at the end of the day, as everybody knows, it takes time. Usually it's not a quick end, right? You're going to have to negotiate with the seller. They may have to stay on for a while, maybe a few you know months between the LOI and when you actually link the purchasing agreement. So not only uh, do you need to have a lot of KPIs, right, and leaning indicators, you really just need to keep stuffing the pipeline. So something you know, so stuff eventually falls out the bottom. Um, it's not a one-year process. You have to really have, I think, a four or five-year timeline for doing this, so that you know one of those conversations you had three years ago, now they're actually ready to sell. They circle back with you. You get a deal linked, um, and you get it done. You know, so I really think you need to have a long timeline with this. Uh, right. and, and Frank, you had mentioned how some sellers kick the can down the road. And the reason why they do that primarily is because they're emotionally engaged in the idea of being a financial advisor and they just have trouble letting go. So when you're talking to a seller, many times as a buyer, you need to be prepared to engage and talk to that seller about their emo emotions around not being a financial advisor any longer. And if you do that, you will quicken the acquisition cycle. That's an awesome point. Um, and I think that's something that you've learned over, over, over the years with, with us here, with me. That's where I was going to ask Joe, like, where do you see deals blow up? And Brian, you're bringing up, this is where deals blow up. And all of a sudden the buyer, as a buyer, you don't understand what happened. Like I gave the guy everything he was looking for. I don't understand what happened. You didn't address the emotional aspect of him not being a financial advisor anymore. The pillow talk. Right, the pillow talk. Um, I've seen it as a former branch manager. I've had numbers of guys that would come into my office and say, I think I'm gonna retire. And I'm like, whatever, just go back to your office. You had a bad day today, probably not gonna happen. And it almost never does. Like I can count on one hand how many times it's actually happened, right? Because they've been advisors their whole lives. It's who they are. It's their being, right? They're many times their best clients are now some of their best friends, right? Vice or it happened was their best friend and it's their best client, right? But a lot of times it's, it's and you know, if you're a financial advisor out there, some of your best clients become your best friends, your confidants, right? You just, you have a respect for each other. And the idea that you're not gonna be able to talk to them anymore is sometimes overwhelming. So if you're a buyer, you have to figure out what that answer is. You have to figure out, to Brian's point, how do you address that issue? And, and maybe you, again, this is what we'll talk about on the next episode with deal structure, but maybe you figure out a way to keep them in the game a little bit longer, right? They want to play in the game a little bit longer. And it's not just a, here's a check, go away, thank you very much. Uh, maybe it's a, hey, here's a partial check and I'll pay you a partial piece to stay in the game 
um, as I sort of like, you know, say, stay around and shake hands and kiss babies, right? To work with your best clients. Um, If they hear that, the buyer, the buyer that tells that to a seller that says, hey, I hear you. I understand what you might be going through. The buyer that addresses that head on, like Brian's saying, is usually the one that's going to win the deal because in the seller's mind, they're going, oh, he gets me. He understands what I'm going through versus, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a number. I'm just an asset number. I'm, a bid. I'm just a bid, right? So, um, but let me just switch gears for, for a minute. Can we talk about M&A? But Brian, when we talk about recruiting, so to clarify the way we, we look at them differently, right? M&A is you're buying a practice and, and eventually at some point the, the advisor is moving on and then you're retaining the, you're retaining the business and you're collecting all the over the revenue on that business. Recruiting, when we refer to recruiting, it's you're bringing a producer to your firm and they're going to continue to produce. They have no interest in selling, but they want to grow. Um, and you're going to collect an override on them. So that's different than an acquisition and the support and the the process, the sale, I'll call it the sales cycle, right, is different. From your perspective, and you've been doing this now for a bunch of years, what do you think makes of a, a, a firm, a good recruiting firm versus your experience with some firms that have not done a good job recruiting? Follow-up, 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 follow-up. I can't say it enough. Uh, firms that recruit really well follow up with the financial advisor and they are always establishing a next step in the recruiting process. I can't tell you how many times I've been on a high quality recruiting call. And then at the end, everyone is like, well, yeah, my people will get in touch with your people and, you know, we'll get something scheduled one day in the future. And then all of a sudden a week goes by, two weeks go by, four weeks go by. And then I get a phone call from the recruiting firm that sounds like, hey, Brian, can you get us a second phone call with this candidate? And as soon as I hear that, I'm more than willing to help, but I do become very concerned with the recruiting process that they have in place. So Frank, follow up and establishing the next step is where really good recruiting firms and firms that don't do so well separate themselves. Yeah, you know, we refer to it as like a dating game, right? And you're when you're in the recruiting process, and maybe this and this is also partially the MA process, the buyer process. Your process is demonstrating how good your firm is or isn't, right? Your follow-up is giving the advisor a free look at what it's going to be like working there. And if it's not hearing back from them, you know, they, they give you a list of questions. This is where I see firms really uh, mess up. Um, they give you a, the advisor gives you a list of questions that are important to them. Whether you think they're stupid questions or not, it doesn't matter. They're important to the advisor and the firm takes weeks to get back to them, if at all, right? Then they end up calling Brian and saying, hey, did you ever hear from XYZ? I sent them a list of questions I haven't heard back. Can you, can you reach out to them? That's a bad look for you as a firm because the advisor's thinking, man, this is supposed, to, you're supposed to be showing me the best of you, right? Like you're dating me. This is, you're supposed to be all rainbows and butterflies right now. And if this is how awful the process is, when you're trying to court me, what's it going to be like when I'm there? And then they just go away. Then, and then what, the calls that we get from the firms is, what happened? Why don't they want to talk to us anymore? 
Where did it go wrong? We we said we would give them what they were looking for. Like, it's like a, it's just crazy. Joe, let me let me put it back to you because I think you have a, a little bit of an interesting insight. Um, and I'm not asking you to give away the um, the, the answers to the test here. Sure. Right. Um, but as Joe said, Joe works for um, John Cutton, who's uh, one of the top, I think he's top five um, F- Forbes advisors, um, one of the biggest in the industry, single practices, the largest at Ameriprise, but in the industries, one of the largest. Um, and he is a serial acquirer and has done a great job, right? Can you give us a little bit of color? And, and I've had him on the podcast in the past, and we've talked a little bit about this, but from your perspective, right? Sure. Um, what, what makes him so good at, at that? What makes him such a good acquirer of businesses? So a few things. I think the number one thing is that he's willing to go out of his way to say yes to whatever the seller thinks they need. Again, as long as it's not outlandish and something that's going to risk the transaction overly, you know, they want to sell a $100 million business and be out in three months, right? Something that's just not reasonable. John is willing to go above and beyond and check most of all of those boxes, right? And I think that's what separates him apart. Sometimes, you know, a lot of buyers fall, the deals fall apart because they just can't get over that. They need to overpay a hundred grand for the practice. They don't want to take an office space. You know, they have an office a few miles away, but the seller really wants you to retain the office space. I think John has done a good job of realizing that the less conflict in the conversation and the transaction and the more the seller feels heard, the easier the deal is going to be and it's going to be done. Also too, I think John is really, I think something back to my original point about really being the CEO, um, he has a M&A team inside of his team. So John is doing a lot of the initial conversation and telling the story and his story as a CEO. But at the end of the day, if the seller was a pain in the butt, right, for lack of a better term, he's not really the person dealing with those day-to-day communications, right? He has a team to do that. So I think that's what separates it as well is you really need to run a firm I want to say like a law firm, but like a real organization. It can't just be a bunch of producers who are doing their own thing and, you know, we're a team, quote unquote, and you're not really a team. You really need to have a unified approach, systems, processes behind this so that you can scale it. And when I mean scale it, not talk to 10 people a year, but how do you actually figure out how to talk to 50, 100 people a year, knowing that half of those deals are going to go nowhere. And I think that's the game. And the people that understand the game and are willing to invest in it, whether it be time, resources, energy, they're going to win the game. Yeah, I think that your first point and, and I know John, and um, I've been able to work with him and um, work with him as a partner on some things. Um, this whole idea of sort of not pay, not worrying about the little things. Yes. I see too many deals blow up because they are well. Uh, your valuation is is three you know three times, so I'm not going to pay three point one times or three point two times because that's too much, right? Meanwhile, you're, it's a rounding error over over a period of time. Because most of the time, you're, if you're a buyer, you're taking over a practice that hasn't really grown because the seller hasn't had the desire to want to sell or want to grow, excuse me. So they haven't done the referral stuff. They haven't done the business growth stuff. So yeah, you might pay a little bit extra for the practice, but if you tuck that practice into your business, now you start all of a sudden showing the clients more love and more focus and a better system and a better process and maybe more touches. More services. More services, right. More services. All of a sudden you buy a $500,000 book that really probably should be producing eight hundred, right? And that's what John gets, right? John gets, if he can take that practice and plug it into his system, um, he'll get the growth. So he's not worried about the small 
crumbs that you're fighting over on the table, right? Because, you know, to, to your guys' point, there's 50, 100 buyers for every seller. So if you're getting a seat at the table to talk to a seller, stop worrying about the details. You know, John and I talk about this all the time. There's a difference between an abundance mindset um, and sort of a, um, a, a, scarcity. a scarcity mindset, excuse me. Um, and where buyers get into trouble is they have a scarcity mindset. They think that this deal has to be perfect. Otherwise, it's going to blow up on me. And they walk away. It's the same thing with recruiting, right? And they have to have, you have to have an abundance mindset that, listen, it may not be perfect. I may not have the right, the deal perfect for me, um, but it's going to get the guy to say, yes, let's do it. And we'll figure it out from there. Um, the same thing, Brian, I know you've had some conversations with recruiting firms, I'll say, where they have an opportunity to, to have a, a really solid candidate join them. And, you know, you sometimes you pull your hair out because they just don't want to do the things you're suggesting that they do that you know will get the recruit to say yes. Because, again, this is another misnomer. We get to have a different conversation with, with advisors than the firm does. They tell us different things, whether it's a buyer or seller or a recruit. They tell us different things that they may tell that they may not tell the firm. So we're coming to them with some really important information. And you only have one shot. Many times you got one shot at the candidate. And it's these firms that just worry about the, the details. Like, um, you know, office space. Guy wants you to take his practice over and he wants you to keep the office space there at least for a while and, and don't let my staff go, right? Well, probably in your best interest to do that. Right. Because the clients probably talk to the staff more than they talk to the financial advisor. Right. So how is that going to work for you? That's where you will screw up a deal. If you buy the practice and you just launch everybody and then Mrs. Jones has been talking to Julie for, you know, 15 years. Julie's not there anymore. Mrs. Jones is probably going to move her account. Right. Um, so anyway, well, I, I digress. Look, I think that the moral of the story here is. There's a huge opportunity, both in the acquisition space and the recruiting space, to grow your practice, to grow your business. Whether you're running a practice, you want to build a large enterprise like someone like John. How many advisors does he have now underneath him? Uh, I think he's got about 90. Um, I would say about 65 active advisors who aren't retiring in the next few years. Right, right. Um, and I just, look, I've gotten to see it firsthand. Another advisor that we actually work with and partner with is, um, is Garrett Taylor, who's one of the largest Kestra advisors who's probably grown his practice to where it is purely be based on M&A. Um, but again, same thing, right? He's got a, he's got a team. He's got, a, I mean, he's got an M&A team. And so um, it's about being prepared. If you want to have that conversation, what I would say to you in sort of wrapping this thing up a little bit, because we're going to talk about the next episode, we're going to get into some of the deals. What does 3X mean? Because everyone talks about, oh, 3X. I heard 15X. Right. Well, 15x isn't the same thing because it's 15x on what? So is it gross? Is it EBITDA? Is it EBOC? What's what does even EBOC even mean? We'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, but I think the moral to the story, or maybe if you want to sort of leave, you know, your your last few like talking point on if you're a buyer, what what should you be 
thinking about right now? And then maybe, Brian, if you're a seller, what should you be thinking about? Yeah, so and I appreciate that, Frank. I think, you know, a lot of buyers or people who are looking to understand mergers and acquisitions need to really understand that if you have a 68-year-old person looking to sell their business within two years, their timeline is two years. They're going to be out when they're 70. Your timeline, right, if you're building an organization that's going to be 20 years before you retire, that's your timeline. So the growth that you're going to get in that 18 years of delta with your firm is going to be so much bigger than what the seller would get in those two years where they're going to sell. So that's what I would really you know, encourage buyers to think about. When it comes to the small stuff, you shouldn't sweat it because if you're a $2 billion firm now and your goal is to be a $20 billion firm in, in you know, 20 years or so, and you actually have a game plan to do that and you're confident you could get there, that multiple that you're going to get when you sell your firm that's 20 times the size or whatever that multiple is, is going to just eventually spiral out of control, right? So you need to realize that there's actually an arbitrage opportunity by you saying yes now to the little things that you think. Even if, um, even if it's years, a little bit overpriced. Even if it's a little bit overpriced. Because right. when you sell your practice, you know, in 20 years, you know, the, mul the multiple that you're going to get is going to be so much greater than this little practice or smaller practice that you're buying now. So I think a lot of buyers are not looking, thinking that far ahead, right? And thinking that big and you need to be, right? If you really want to be serious in this space, you need to have a long-term game plan and you need to understand, I think, how the industry is going to be in the next 10 or 20 years um, and engage the opportunity. And Brian, if you're talking to sellers, what, sure. what, what is the sort of parting words that a seller should be thinking about? As a seller, you really have to decide on what outcome you want by the sale of your assets, because there are four different possible outcomes. They are selling 100% of the business and then only staying around long, long enough to make sure that the assets are sticky to the acquirer. You could sell 100% of the assets and then go work for the acquirer as an employee getting paid like a wirehouse advisor would. You could then go affiliate with a firm and sell a partial piece of your business. And then you could potentially think that you're a seller get introduced to an awesome firm, realize that you have a lot more juice in the tank and then just want to affiliate with that firm and not even think about your succession at the moment. So you really want to understand what out of those four possible outcomes you want. And then we'll make sure that we introduce you to the firms that will get you there. So that's what I would like to leave with the seller. Awesome. So listen, if uh, if you're if you fit one of those buckets, right, and you want to have a conversation, you can give them a call. Uh, Joe, what's the best number for someone to reach you at? I will say I think it's 516-265-1410 with my new number here at Elite. So okay. 516-265-1410 or send me an email, joseph at eliteconsultingpartners.com. Okay. And Brian, what about you? My number is 856-258-0447. And you can reach me at Brian at EliteConsultingPartners.com. Brian with an I, please. Awesome. And so listen, if you want to talk to them um, and, and just have a conversation, an open dialogue about this is what I'm thinking about, what would you suggest? Or am I thinking the wrong way? Or how should I be thinking about it? I, to Brian's point, I'm not sure if I want to sell, but I maybe I just need a, a what we call a contingent successor, right? Like, hey, I don't want to sell, but I also, my wife's worried that if I get hit by a bus or my clients, right? We didn't even talk about that. My clients keep asking me, what happens, John, if you get hit by a bus, who's taking over my accounts? That's where the pressure comes from, right. Frank, a by lot the way, of time. By is, the way, is from the clients. Right. 
and this is a secret message to you financial advisors, if your clients aren't asking you that question, they're thinking it. I guarantee that. So you better have an answer to that question. As a matter of fact, you should have an answer and and talk to them about it before they finally talk to you about it. Because if they're asking you that question, in my experience, some other financial advisor who has a team put that question in their mind. So you need to get ahead of that. Anyway, um, we hope you like the show. Uh, again, we're gonna our next episode. We're gonna really talk about um, different ways. Uh, to structure deals, like Byron was talking about, there are different ways to do things: partial sale, full sale. What is the difference between a PE buyer and a and a, and a, and a you know advisor buyer, pure buyer? Um, so, with that said, we appreciate it. Don't forget to go to my Instagram account at franklarosa.elite. Uh, share this episode with everybody. Um, we, we appreciate it. Subscribe and like, and smash that like button at, uh, at Apple iTunes. So, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts.